Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Natasha Pulley on her latest novel, The Kingdoms. Natasha Polly's first novel, The Watchmaker of Filigree Street, was a Sunday Times bestseller, won a Betty Trask Award, and was shortlisted for the Authors Club Best First Novel Award. Her second novel, The Bedlam Stacks, was shortlisted for the Royal Society of Literature's Encore Award and longlisted for the Walter Scott Prize, while The Lost Future of Pepper Harrow was published in 2020 to widespread critical acclaim. Natasha's latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, her latest novel is The Kingdoms. Natasha, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Before I ask you how you would describe this particular novel, the previous three that I've just mentioned in the intro were like a sort of loose trilogy. And this book has a similar feel in terms of the setting and some of the technology involved, which we'll talk about. But other than that, is there any other connection with the with the previous three? No, not at all. This is completely new territory for me, and it's a completely fresh start. So even if you've never read any of my stuff before, you can start knowing nothing about me with The Kingdoms. So tell us how you would describe The Kingdoms then. So The Kingdoms is alternative history. It's about what might have happened if Britain had lost the Battle of Trafalgar to France. It's about what would happen if Britain had become a colony of France. And in particular, it's about a man who arrives at a train station with no memory and knows nothing really, except he has this terrible sense that everything is wrong. Let's talk about where you're, first of all, I guess the fascination with the technology in this book comes from. Because again, (laughs) the one thing it sort of has in connection with the previous three is that it sort of reimagines the Victorian era. It's not, obviously, because it's an alternative history, but the 19th century. And therefore, it has a sort of, I guess, a sort of steampunky feel, again, like the previous three do. Tell us where this this fascination with that sort of Victorian technology comes from, first of all. Well, it's the most recent technology that I can actually understand. And you can't write about it unless you understand it. So that's reason number one. Um, Reason number two related to that is that I really love the history of technology. I'm not at all a physics and engineering person um, because I have the mathematical brain of a dead caterpillar. But I do find it all fascinating. And I find 19th century stuff particularly fascinating to read about because, as I say, I can, that is within 
my boundary of understanding still. And I think it's interesting if you kind of look at the history of technology and the history of science, you usually find that you can date the point of your understanding. And mine is 1905, Einstein. Anything before that, I can kind of more or less manage. Anything after that, I'm completely at sea. So this is like everything that I've written, like all those steampunk elements, I think they're probably just reflective of that. Like if you leave me in a museum of technology, I would happily live there in a tent. And... Beyond that then, let's talk about what was the particular inspiration for this story. You've also you already mentioned that it's an alternative history of, of you know what would have happened if the Napoleonic Wars would have gone the other way. Where did that idea come from? So I have always loved alternative histories. And I think like a lot of people, most of my experience of alternate histories is novels that usually discuss the question of what would the world be like if the Nazis had won World War II. And I love those. But I think the trouble is World War II has been really, really done. Like we can all imagine what life would be like if Hitler had won. And the answer is it would be bloody terrible. And that's been very much discussed by, you know, real giants like Robert Harris and Fatherland and people like CJ Samson in um, Dominion. It's all brilliant. And stuff like SSGB. And I read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which of course is alternative history of the Napoleonic Wars with magic. And I went, yeah, do you know what? It didn't matter in that book that I didn't actually know any of the history of the Napoleonic Wars. Because I feel like if you're going to do an alternate history, one of the things that you kind of have to rely on is that the audience know how history really went. But the further back you go the less you can be sure of that. So we all know how World War II went. But can you rely on just anyone off the street knowing exactly what happened in the Napoleonic Wars? Or when I read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, I didn't. And so actually it was really reassuring to read a book like that where history was entirely different with magic in it and, you know, the the Raven King and a world in the mirrors. And it, it just didn't, it didn't take away anything from that. And when I thought, right, now is the time for my time slip alternate history novel, I sort of went, I'm itching to do the Napoleonic Wars because what if Nelson had lost at Trafalgar? Because he could have and he should have. And it's one of those moments where history just spins on a penny. And what if it had spun the other way? What if it was tails and not heads? And this is fascinating to me in particular because I have to admit that this is an era that I've often thought that I sort of think things would have been better if we'd have lost the Napoleonic War (laughs) in a lot of ways. Like you say, you say, obviously, like, like, you're right, you know, we all think of like fatherland or whatever. And yeah, that book's brilliant. But you're absolutely right in that, you know, if Hitler had won the Second World War, it sort of does half of your work for you in that obviously things are going to be bad. And like whatever story you then put in that world, we can all imagine, well, we all know what actually happened. And so it's just extrapolating that a little bit further to this country, you know, Britain under occupation by the Nazis and plenty of people have done that. But yeah, in this case, I want to talk about how you've envisioned Britain under occupation by France, because it certainly goes off in a a different way than I might have imagined. And yeah, I honestly, this is something I've daydreamed about in the past. Weirdly, I have weird daydreams. (laughs) But you know, I'm a you know I'm a Republican, and and you know I I love France and I love French culture, and yeah, I've yeah, often yeah. wondered, I've often thought that like you know in this country Napoleon is the bad guy. Obviously, that's yeah. how that whole situation is portrayed, and this strikes me as one of those wars where, 
you know, actually, the balance was a lot more than the Nazis, if you see what I'm saying. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Could have like, gone either way. Not, yeah, we. I don't think there's any point where we can frame this as just good versus evil. Yeah, that's exactly. Not what the Napoleonic Wars was. Yeah. So tell us about the world that you've created, the Britain that you've created, where France occupies it. Sure. So in many ways, it's a very bleak envisioning of an alternative future. So Britain is a colony of France and it's become the industrial centre. So London is this very, very industrialised place that produces steel for the entirety of the French Empire. Um, And in this alternative universe, it's called the Black City because everything is just blackened with soot from these immense furnaces and engines and factories that just run all the time. St Paul's is a ruin because it was bombed in the taking of London. Slavery is alive and well because it was in everybody's colonies at this time. And the main character is uh, extremely, extremely working class. So there are bad things about it. And there is also a terrorist group called the Saints, which is all about restoring the king to England. But everybody thinks that they're just a bunch of gibbering nutbags. And they are. But there are other elements that are good as well. And in some ways, it's a little bit, um, well, it's not all bad, let's say. So the England that fell was a horrible England. It was, you know, if you're in the Navy, you just got flogged for anything. Well, the French Navy didn't flog its sailors. And that's one of the reasons that Britain saw a kind of hemorrhaging of seamen into the French navies because the conditions were better, uh, the pay was better. And we see things like nicer food coming into Britain. We see the erosion of those incredibly powerful families that had a financial stranglehold on everything. It's all been to some extent democratized and it's become rancid again because it's been a hundred years since Britain fell so there's been time for all the revolutionary fervor to have died down there's national trauma from a London version of the terror but in some ways things have been shaken up and evened out a little bit but that's not really the case for the narrator because he's a slave and I wanted to talk to you about your depiction of slavery in the book because you know as you've said at this point all of the empires had slavery, but the depiction of slavery that we see, Joe, our main character at the beginning of the story, is a slave. He's not a slave for very long, but yeah. at the beginning of the book, he is a slave. But it's a very particular form of slavery. And I wanted to talk about depicting slavery in this way in the book. Yeah. So I think it's incredibly difficult you don't want to treat it lightly but also you don't want it to be a kind of horror show and sort of showcase people's trauma just for kind of voyeuristic ends and so the kind of slavery that I was thinking about was well entrenched slavery of the Roman kind so anyone in these colonies is enslaved it isn't racially specific it's you know we've we've got slaves from all walks of life very much as they as they were held in Rome. And one of the reasons that I did that was that I think my reading of this, of history, and I'm not a historian, but one of the things that I think French Republicans were very interested in was the Roman Republic. How did Rome do this? Napoleon loved the idea of Roman emperors. And so I started thinking about Rome and how are slaves in Rome? And it was not necessarily even though, of course, this did happen to lots of Roman slaves, it was not necessarily 
um, being put on a horrendous ship and sent to a horrendous plantation where you would definitely die. So Joe is not a field slave, he's a house slave. And so as slavery goes, this is the, the slightly less horrendous side of things. And he does not terribly suffer from this because he doesn't he, he has amnesia so he doesn't remember all the years he spent as a slave his wife does but he doesn't remember and his experience of it is very mild in comparison to the experience of many real life slaves and one of the reasons that I wanted to do that was that I did not feel morally able to depict terrible trauma I have no ownership over it and what I wanted to do was show that this colony was incredibly different from our own history, but not in a way that would just be kind of this really awful all the time. And you mentioned his amnesia. At the beginning of the book, we meet Joe. He's in a station, I, think, I presume King's Cross Station. It is, it's King's uh, Cross yeah, Station. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the uh, Stade Leroy. Um, as it's called, uh, Gala yeah. Roy. Sorry, yeah, um, the King's Station. That was the closest I could yeah. get. <laughs> yeah, uh, Gala Roy, and in Londres, and he's he's gone off a train. He's obviously travelled from somewhere. He's gone off a train, and suddenly he has this amnesiac episode, which it turns out later on again. This is very much a book where we cannot give very much away about what happens but let's just talk about this incident in the beginning he has this amnesia which it turns out a number of people are a lot of people are experiencing for reasons we won't go into but just tell us a bit more about you know where this episode comes from so joe gets off this train and he gets onto the platform and he has no idea who he is where he's come from why he's on the train none of it And a kindly stranger explains that he's been on the train, it was from Glasgow, and gets him to a hospital where he's he's treated by specialists. And one of the specialists says, do you know what? I think it's epilepsy. It's an epileptic kind of amnesia. This is a real thing. It's epileptic amnesia. And it's this thing called silent epilepsy. You, You have these strange blackouts without the epileptic fits that we associate with the more visible kind of epilepsy. And the specialist says, well, actually, an awful lot of people in the French Empire are coming down with this, particularly people in Britain and France. We don't really know why, but, you know, we're looking into it. Um, and it is to do with the fact that history has changed. But nobody knows this. And Joe very gradually works out what's going on, but it takes in most of the book. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Natasha Polly and we're talking about her new novel, The Kingdoms. And Natasha, I've I've just said that, you know, there's a whole lot of the book that we can't really talk about without giving too much away. And this is the thing I often say in the show when we're talking about novels that have some sort of suspense element. I honestly think this is the first time ever where I'm also going to say that we literally can't talk about quite a few of the characters in this book because of the way they're which, you know, they're revealed as to who they are and, you know, what part they play in the wider mystery. But let's talk about Joe Turney. Have a go. <laughs> because at least, you know, we start off the book with Joe. Yeah. Um, he's the, you know, he's the protagonist of the story. We've talked a little bit about him, but tell us some more about who he is and and what his place in this world is. So Joe, once he's been released from an asylum where where they look after people with his condition, um, he's taken home by a man who claims to own him and a woman who claims to be his wife. He doesn't recognise either of them. But they live in a a kind of a a shabby house in Clerkenwell and actually it's fine and they're both very nice to him. And he kind of soldiers on for a little while, but he never regains his memory and he's increasingly urgent about finding out well what happened to him and who he is and one day in the post there comes a postcard but the postcard is very peculiar it is postmarked from almost 100 years ago even though it's addressed to him in his own name and on the front is the etching of a lighthouse called Ireland Moor and when he sees it it seems familiar and this is the first familiar thing he's ever seen and on the back there's a very simple note it says come home if you remember m he has no idea who m is he thinks it might be a woman called madeline um, who he slightly remembers but he doesn't know who she is he just has flashes of her so he needs to find out about this lighthouse and he has no idea why it's marked 100 years ago and he thinks it might be some kind of weird trick but the postman says no it was held at the post office for 100 years and here it is so what he does is he hunts out the company that built the lighthouse this kind of throws a spanner in the works for him because the company who built the lighthouse say well actually we only built it two years ago it can't possibly be 100 years old we put the engines in a couple of years ago what are you talking about and so the trail kind of goes cold but what he does is he gets a job working in that engine workshop and a couple of years later the engine of this lighthouse breaks down or rather is sabotage and joe volunteers to go out and have a look at it because it's the one and only chance he will get to see where this lighthouse is and who wrote to him and so he travels to scotland this is you know quite early on in the book and Scotland's is a separate entity to England. It's, this is another one of the ways in which this seems <laughs> better, a better situation than the actual present, in that Scotland has some sort of form of independence. And he, you know, eventually arrives on the island. And, you know, so far in the book, although this is an alternative reality, it's a London that we don't recognise. And in the, you know, the 19th century or the, you know, the very late 19th century, in fact, at this point, it's the beginning of the 20th century. It is. We're in like 1901 yeah, at this point. But so far, we seem to be in a recognisable world, even though there's some intimations that something odd is going on because Joe has this postcard from 100 years ago, etc. When he gets to the Outer Hebrides, 
it becomes very clear. I don't know what you know where we can go with this, but tell us a little bit about what he finds when he gets there, because there is something very odd going on with the lighthouse, and yeah. in fact, the area. The weather's weird. The whole the area. Is weird. So he has to get to this place by ship. Like the land routes aren't safe. So he goes there by ship, and when he sails into the nearest port that serves this lighthouse, it's it's on the Outer Hebrides, so like Lewis and Harris. When he comes into the pool, um, he sees this incredible structure that is just not there in the real world. And it's this thing called the Harris Wall. And it's the most enormous fortress that goes right down the coast. And it looks out to sea. And he's really puzzled by it because, like, what are they protecting against? Like, there's nothing there. Like, beyond that point is nothing but America. But this fortress is ancient. So there is some sense that people living in this place for hundreds of years have built these huge defences facing out to sea for apparently no reason. So that's puzzling thing number one when he arrives. He stays overnight in this place before going out to the lighthouse. And while he's there, he realises that something really weird is going on with the weather. It is much colder than it should possibly be for this part of the world. Scotland is cold, but it's not so cold that the sea would freeze. But that's exactly what the sea does. And it does it very, very suddenly one morning, like winter comes in all at once very quickly. And it seems to come in from a particular point over the sea as if cold weather is being pulled in from somewhere else. And that point is between two pillars in the water. But they look perfectly normal. They look like they belong to the ruins. And when he's taken out to the lighthouse, which is another 10 miles offshore, um, he's taken through those pillars. And after that, things start getting very weird. <laughs> and that's really <laughs> all we'll mention on the subject. But you know, so far, again, we've mentioned numerous times that this is, you know, it's an alternative history book. But also, it's there are multiple alternative histories in this book. And it's a book of, I guess, parallel universes, we could describe it as but also time travel. And so I want to talk a little bit about the process of, you know, how this book came together in terms of writing, in terms of how you manage (laughs) both time travel and multiple histories. Well, what I will say is that it was an absolute mess (laughs) for years. (laughs) I've never suffered so much writing a book. So it started life with a single scene and it was Joe going into a lighthouse where the previous keepers, three men, uh, had vanished. And this this is still in the book. And it's him going around the lighthouse and trying to work out what happened to them. Why did they just vanish one day? Like their weather gear is still there, like burn cakes are still in the oven. And that was the first thing that I wrote for this book. And then I got stuck because I just didn't know what was going to happen next or why he was there or who he was or what happened to these other lighthouse keepers. And very gradually, the plot built up around that. All of it, the whole insane mess turned out to be a way to get him to that place at that moment. So where did um, that initial image come from of him being at the lighthouse? Well, everybody likes a lighthouse, don't they? Mm, that's true. Um, that's true. Uh, writers are no different. Um, lighthouses are very charged spaces. They're very liminal. And so I think lighthouses are always a good image to use if you want some kind of weird transition to happen. Um, so that was what was there. But I had read... A really interesting story that I think is actually culturally relatively well known. And it is about the three lighthouse keepers who disappeared at Isle of Moor in 1901. 
Um, and this, this is a real thing. You can go look it up on Google. Three guys, three lighthouse keepers, and you were always supposed to have two or three because obviously people just go insane by themselves from, if you're alone for months. Three lighthouse keepers on this tiny isolated rock off the coast of Scotland just went missing one night. And when the lighthouse board, uh, which is the regulatory body that looks after lighthouses, investigated, they found that even though there had been a terrible storm, the, the lighthouse keepers' heavy weather gear, so like their oil skins, they were still inside. Uh, there was no sign that any of them had tried to pack up, no sign that any of them had even tried to leave, nothing. They were just gone And I thought that was really intriguing because I think if you write any kind of historical fiction, whether it's straight up or alternative history or something else, an unsolved mystery is brilliant because if there are no facts to be had, this is where you get to make it up. One more thing and then I'll get you to to read a bit of the book, if you would. Um, We talked about a lot of the things, you know, sort of interests of yours that feed into all of your work in terms of the science and stuff. Which other writers are an influence on your work? Um, so Susanna Clark, Jonathan Strange and Miss Sonoro, who I've already spoken about. Um, I love Robert Harris. I've read everything that Robert Harris has ever written um, because he's a god and I worship the ground he walks on. Even the weird novel about the Dreyfus affair set in Paris where I didn't understand what was going on. I still loved that. That was great. Um, <laughs> I love people like Arthur Conan Doyle. I love that kind of like that, that high Victorian era of detective writing. I think that was really interesting. Um, I love anything with a healthy dose of magic in it. I, I grew up on a diet of Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Can I get you to finish off with a reading from the kingdoms then? Yeah, you absolutely can. And I feel like given everything we've said about not giving anything away, it might be sensible to begin at the beginning. Mm-hmm, indeed. This is chapter one. And it's set in Londres, which is London, in 1898, 93 years after the Battle of Trafalgar. Most people have trouble recalling their first memory because they have to stretch for it, like trying to touch their toes. But Joe didn't. That was because it was a memory formed a week after his 43rd birthday. He stepped down off the train. That was it, the very first thing he remembered. But the second was something less straightforward. It was the slow eerie feeling that everything was doing just what it should be, minding its own business, but at the same time, it was all wrong. It was early in the morning and cursedly cold. Vapour hissed on the black engine right above him. Because the platform was only a couple of inches above the tracks, the double pistons of the wheels were level with his waist. He was so close he could hear the water boiling above the furnace. He stepped well away, feeling tight with the certainty that it was about to lurch forward. The train had just come in. The platform was full of people looking slow and stiff from the journey, all moving towards the concourse. The sweet carbon smell of coal smoke was everywhere. Because it was only just light outside, the round lamps of the station gave everything a pale glow and cast long, hazy shadows. Even the steam had a shadow, a shy devil trying to decide whether to be solid or not. Joe had no idea what he was doing there. He waited because railway stations were internationally the same and they were a logical place to get confused if there was ever a logical place. But nothing came. He couldn't remember coming here or going anywhere. He looked down at himself. With a writhe of horror, he found he couldn't even remember getting dressed. His clothes were unfamiliar. A heavy coat lined with tartan, a plain waistcoat with interesting buttons stamped with laurel patterns. 
The sign on the wall said that this was platform three. Behind him, on the train, a conductor was going along the carriages saying the same thing again and again, quiet and respectful, because he was having to wake people up in first class. Londres, Garderoy, all change please, Londres, Garderoy. Joe wondered why the hell the train company was giving London names in French and then wondered helplessly why he'd wondered. All the London station names were French. Everyone knew that. Someone touched his arm and asked in English if he was all right. It made him jump so badly that he twanged the nerve in the back of his skull and white pain shot down his neck. Uh, sorry, could you tell me where we are? He asked and heard how ridiculous it sounded. The man didn't seem to think it was extraordinary to find an amnesiac at a railway station. London, he said, the Garderoy. Joe wasn't sure why he'd been hoping for something other than what he'd heard the conductor say. He swallowed and looked away. The steam was clearing. There were signs everywhere for the Colonial Library, the Musée Britannique, the Metro. There was a board not far away that said the Desmoulins line was closed because of the drilling below. And beyond that, elaborate gates that led out into the fog. Definitely uh, London in England, he said eventually. It is, the man said. Oh, said Joe. So I've been talking to Natasha Polly. We've been talking about her new novel, The Kingdoms, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. Natasha, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Not at all. It's really my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.